Morning, church. Good to see you all. Let's get our Bibles out and opened to the book of Psalms. Psalm 120. And while you're turning there, um, I see some of you are already aware of this because there are uh, a lot of books missing from the back table already, but there is a book giveaway today, uh, The Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul, and considered by many to be a classic. And we give you that book for kind of summer reading for a couple reasons. One, it provides moral clarity, which is something we all need in the time and culture that we live in. God obviously defines what is right and what is wrong, and R.C. brings that out really well in his holiness. And also he presents a sovereign God, which is the truth of the Bible, and we need that. We need a big God who is over and in and with and working in all things. So I think it will be encouraging, helpful. It will take you deeper into the heart of who God is and his character. And also there's some church history in there, which um, having come off of our study last fall, I think will also uh, be encouraging to you guys. So we put a few devotionals as well, Paul Tripp's devotional, uh, New Morning Mercies, which we think really highly of and, and is very valuable. Um, so please enjoy that. And as we get into the Psalms, I want to challenge you, we won't get to every Psalm of Ascent, 120 through 134, uh, we'll get to a lot of them, but I want to challenge you to choose one of those Psalms and memorize it. So you can skim through them, see which one kind of sticks out to you. Most of them are short, I think there's maybe one or two that's a bit longer, uh, but they're pretty short, pretty bite-sized, so I'll just challenge us all. I'm going to do it with you. Um, pick one of them that just speaks to you and memorize it. Commit it to memory as we go through the summer, okay? Let's read together Psalm 120. In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you? And what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree? Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshech, that I dwell in the tents of Cater. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your holy word. We thank you for the Psalms, Lord, the anatomy of the soul presented in songs and prayers and praises, every human emotion captured within these 150 chapters. We thank you for the encouragement that it has been to your people over generations, and it is encouraging to us. Lord, we ask that you would take us deeper into the truth of the Psalms, and really, Whenever we try to dig into your word, we're digging into Jesus Christ, who is the word of God. And so help us to read these Christologically, that we would sense and feel and see and study Jesus in the Psalms. That it, yes, it, it was a person, it was David or whoever it was that spoke them, Lord, but Jesus is the content of Scripture. This is about Jesus in the end. He takes these up on his lips. 
So help us not just to study and analyze and, and, and to experience the emotion and the, the feeling, and, but that we would also know Jesus more deeply through studying the Psalms. Lord, we pray for Pastor Trevor and his family. Uh, we miss them already this week to see an empty row. Um, we just pray your blessing on their time away. Uh, we pray that you would help Trevor to rest in you, that all his responsibilities um, are not ultimately his, they are yours, and you are very capable of fulfilling them and getting things done even though he's not here. That's hard for all of us, maybe especially in ministry. And so I pray there would be just a sweet peace and trust in his heart. Pray that they would have a great time as a family, they would grow in their relationships, and that he and Stephanie would have plenty of time and space to disciple their kids, um, that they have a ton of fun together, and that uh, you would be working in this season. Thank you for those who are stepping up in their place. Thank you for um, those who are fulfilling those responsibilities in ministry. Uh, we just appreciate that, and uh, it just shows us, Lord, that it's not about any one man in the church. It's about the ministry and the body of Christ you equip and you call and you empower to fulfill the ministry you've given us in the Great Commission, and we give you glory for that, and we are confident of that. So be with me now, Lord, as I speak and preach that the words that I say and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight and would be effective for your purposes. In Jesus' great name, amen. Psalms of Ascent. I think most Christians, probably most of you, are pretty familiar with the Psalms. Uh, you know, a lot of Bibles that we give out, it's maybe the Gospels and Psalms. Uh, this is the hymn book of the church. It's the, the, the prayer book of the church. Very familiar, but it's interesting there are little groupings within the Psalms. So um, you have 113 through 118, which are the Halal Psalms. They were sung during Passover. Probably Jesus and his disciples sung them in the upper room when we have that story. Uh, you have 146 through 150, which are just songs of praise. It's kind of this magnificent finish to the whole book. You have 120 through 134, the Psalms of Ascent, and there are other groupings. Um, we're not exactly sure what it means when you see in your Bible there, Songs of Ascent, and, and that's not Scripture. That's just mm, kind of a half scripture, <laughs> maybe, but probably not, and it was added in just to describe what's coming after it, so when we actually read God's Word, I don't read that, that's on purpose, because uh, we're not confident that that's actually scripture. Um, we don't know what it means exactly, but we think, and we're pretty confident that it ties in with God's people leaving their homes and journeying to Jerusalem. That they would sing these songs as they went, as they traveled, as they journeyed. And Jerusalem was the highest point in Palestine, Mount Zion. So they're actually ascending as they sing, as they travel, as they go to whether it's to Feast of Passover, Feast of Tabernacles. Um, they left their home and they journeyed. Because in the Old Testament, that's where God was. God is in the temple. God is in Jerusalem. So you have to go to God. He's not coming to you 
in the Old Covenant. The Spirit has not been poured out, so we know we have the full presence, indwelling Holy Spirit within each of us as Christians. It wasn't like that. That's why we have Acts 2. That's why Joel is prophesying about the Spirit being poured out. And so you went, you went to God. You ascended to God, literally. And the Psalms of Ascent, it kind of represents a life, a life lived with God. It's a summary of, of, of your walk, okay, out of darkness and into and toward light. As a pilgrim, these 15 Psalms, they, they, they kind of have an order, a flow, a representation of our lives as Christians. John Calvin thought of them as different musical notes arising in succession. So each note is a different emotion, distress, pain, hardship, confidence, praise, confession. And the notes are rising to meet God. It really sums up the Christian life. As we move through them, I think you'll see that. And, and, and different ones will hit you different depending on where you are or what you've been through. The idea is we're moving. You're moving. Just like these, these people, God's people, who were singing these psalms, you're moving. To be a Christian is to be moving. <laughs> you're going somewhere. Um, from this world to your true home. As we just sung, we are not home. We're here. We would call it this. Yeah, there's my home right over there, but that's not our home. We're going to our home. We're, we're leaving death in Adam to life in Christ. We're, we're leaving selfishness on our way to holiness. We're, we're leaving believing the world and, and going toward believing God more and more. We're on the move. We're not static. The Christian life is never static. It's always in motion. It's always moving. And on the other hand, to be a Christian is to be in between. We haven't arrived. We've left, but we haven't arrived yet. You've left your old life, but you haven't fully come into the new you yet. It's like a family that goes on a road trip when they're moving cross-country. They've left their home. They haven't arrived at their new home. They're in between. That's where we live. We're in between. We're going somewhere, but we're in between. Sojourning, traveling. The Psalms of Ascent are born from that tension. You tracking with that? They're born out of that tension of we're, we're on the move, but we haven't gotten there yet. And they're meant to give you courage, hope, patience on the difficult road upward to Christ. They're meant to help you get home. And it, it, I think it's really interesting that the Holy Spirit chose to put this Psalm first. Among the Psalms of Ascent, among this, like we've left our home, we're walking to Jerusalem, and we start singing. What do we start with? This psalm. It's not a happy psalm, is it? This is not, mm, God is good all the time. It's not a Christian cliche. You know, I, I tell you, when, when God closes a door, He opens a window, however that goes. No! That is not what this is. I hate that, by the way. It's not in the Bible. This is, 
I love Jesus, but life really sucks right now. This is, I love Jesus, but my family is a disaster. I love Jesus, but I hate my job. I love Jesus, but I am really mad right now at something. It's real. It's real. Sometimes, don't we feel the burden as Christians? We have, always have to be the happiest person in the room. What is that? I'm so tired of that. It's like we think that old Nat King Cole song is like from our hymn book. Uh, uh, smile though your heart is aching. Smile even though it's breaking. When there are clouds in the sky, you'll get by. Light up your face with gladness. Hide every trace of sadness, although a tear may ever be so near. Great melody, terrible lyrics. That is not in the Bible. That is not from God because it's not real. It's not real. And if it's not real, it won't draw people to a God who is real. He is. And so we need to be real as we represent Him. You do not, I'm just giving you permission, you do not always have to be the happiest person in the room. What Christian should be is the most real person in the room. The most loving person in the room. You don't have to be happy in order to be loving. You can be sad. You can be down. You can be going through something real and still love people. What you can't do is be fake happy and love people. They do not go together. What's going to attract people toward Jesus? Being real. Like the Psalms. Because guess what? They're living in the real world. They're not living in fake Christian happy land. Now, I, I certainly don't want to be living there. It just sounds terrible when I say it. They're going to be attracted to you, to Jesus, to the Christian faith when you're real. Because they have real problems. They need real answers. They need a real Savior. And if we feel this burden, like we got to be fake, we got to always be smiling, we got to always be happy, we got to put on this front, that's not from God. Do you think Jesus lived like that? I don't think so. I read the Gospels, I do not get that impression. I think he was the most real person ever. The journey starts with being real. Psalm 120. God gets the struggle. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, your Savior, gets the struggle because He lived it. So let's dig in. Verse 1. In my distress, I called to the Lord, and He answered me. Notice the tense. Tense is very important in the Psalms, in the Bible in general, but particularly in the Psalms. And what tense does He start with? Past tense, I called, he answered. Before he engages the present trouble, he remembers the past trouble and how God was faithful. It's so simple, but instructive. We tend to be like pots for plants. 
I'm doing a lot of planting, so this is where my mind is at. Just go with me. You know how they have holes, pots for plants, they have holes in the bottom so the water can drain out. I learned that it, it, they need that the hard way. We lost a lot of good petunias that year. Um, that's on me. So we have trouble, we have distress, we have trials, we have heat, we get dry, and we ask God to water us. Help us, Lord. Sustain us, Lord. Lord, this is what I need. I'm praying, I'm asking, please help me, help me. Give me something. And he does. He's faithful. He sustains us, but then the water drains out and you get dry again. You're struggling again. And instead of remembering the last hundred times that he was faithful to you, you get anxious. You get fearful. Is he going to show up? Where is he? Is he going to help me? I'm praying. Nothing's happening. What's going on? Where's God? And you forget. That he has watered you again and again and again and been faithful to sustain you again and again. And your faith is just, it's just gone. This is what the psalmist is doing. Before, he's, he's coming into trouble, he's coming into something difficult. And before, he moves into it and asks God for help, he, he pauses and he remembers. I was in distress before, I called out to the Lord, he answered me. Let's learn from that. Learn from that. If you do that, if you pause and you remember, I mean, like really remember specific occasions when God was faithful to you, your body will literally produce endorphins and calm you down. Because you're tempted to get anxious. Where is he? Why is he not here? My life is dry. I think it's very important. That's where he starts. And then, verse 2, he moves to the present. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. So now we're in the present. This is the problem at hand. Someone is lying about him. Someone is using their words to deceive others about him, and it's disorienting. Isn't that what that feels like? Have you guys ever felt that? Someone is saying things about you that are not true. Someone is lying about you. And you feel helpless. I mean, I can't go <laughs> run roughshod over all these people. That's not true. That's not who I am. That's not what I said. You feel like you're in the trunk of a car, like you can't do anything. And it hurts. Words hurt. Did anyone ever tell you growing up, sticks and stones will break your bones, but words will never hurt you? What a crock. It should be, sticks and stones will break your bones, but words will destroy your soul. That's the truth. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, is what God says. Words are powerful. So you shouldn't feel bad when they affect you. You know, I, th I think sometimes we feel bad, like I'm just being a baby. Like, well, so what? They just said that. Uh, it, I'm getting all worked up. What's wrong with me? It shouldn't bother me what somebody says about me. But words can be arrows through the heart. They can be daggers in the back. And conversely, they can be sweet, like honey, to the soul and to the body. Words can bring healing. So... I just want to say, it's not strange that words affect you. 
It's not strange that words affect you. I know every one of you has things that your parents said to you growing up that you still remember very specifically, whether good or bad. There's a reason. Words are powerful. Now, it's important how we respond to them with biblical truth that God's word has the last word in our life. But don't feel strange that words affect you, that they keep you up at night, that you turn them over in your mind again and again. God is a speaking God, and we are made in His his image and likeness. And, And His words have power, greater power, greater power, but our words have power too. And the psalmist feels that. He feels the power of words. And let me just say this to those of you who are married. Your words to your spouse carry the most power out of anyone in their life. Whether for encouragement or for criticism, they carry tremendous power, which makes total sense because you are one flesh. So I'll leave it at that. Just tuck that away. Remember that. What you say or don't say to your spouse carries the greatest weight in their life, whether they admit that or not. It just does. So we're starting to feel the shape and tone of the psalm, the lament, the pain. Some have said you can understand the psalms as sounds. If Psalm 120 were a sound, what would it be? Maybe a sigh? (sighs) Maybe a yell? Ah! Frustration? As we go through these psalms, think about what is the sound that it's making? Feel them before you think about them. And whatever, whatever sound's being made, it's being made toward God, and that is faith. You know, even if sometimes you just yell, literally yell at God, it's at God. That's faith. It's when we turn away from God and we don't talk to Him honestly, openly, that's not faith. And, you know, the psalmist, whatever situation he's in, we don't know the specifics. I think it's important to point out that there's a way out. He sees there's a way out of his distress, and it's through God. And I would just say to some of you, maybe... You're in distress, you have hardships, you have trouble, you have suffering in your life, and you have not seen God as the answer. Something else is. You're trying everything. But the way out is always God, and there is a way out. Your life is not blind fate. It's not chance. It hasn't been decided by just the stars or your horoscopes. There is a sovereign good God in charge of your life, and whatever you're going through, whatever the struggles, He is the answer. He is the way out. And I think sometimes we feel trapped. You might feel trapped right now. There's a way out. It's life with God. Verse 3. What shall be given to you? Or maybe better translated, what is God going to do to you? And what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? A warrior sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. For the ancient Hebrew, this is the language of war. Destroying cities. Kill soldiers with arrows, and then you take the broom tree, you light it on fire, and you, you, you burn down the city. That is what the psalmist expects God to do to his enemy. He's asking for it. 
Another way to say this is that sin always has consequences. Sin always has consequences. He's praying for consequence for his enemy, for justice, for, for something to happen to him that alerts him, this is not okay. And you may not see that in someone's life, but it's an ontological law of the universe. Sin always has consequences. Ken Sandy mentions it in his book, The Peacemaker, that part of a true confession to someone when you've sinned against them is accepting the consequences. It's accepting the consequences. Um, so let's take it out of the realm of enemy. Okay, let's bring it into the realm of people in our life we love, we care for. Seeing them experience the consequence of their sin makes us uncomfortable. Very often it makes us uncomfortable. But it may be the best thing for them. It may be the very best thing for them. Proverbs 19.19, hot-tempered people must pay the penalty. If you rescue them once, you will have to do it again. Psalm 119.67, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. So the reason that I'm keeping your word is because I was afflicted. Now, maybe that's not anything that they did to deserve that, but maybe, maybe it's consequences for sin. And maybe God brought that in order to teach them something. Seeing God bring consequences into people's lives can make us very uncomfortable, especially with our kids, especially with our grandkids. We don't want to see them experience the fallout from their sinful choices. We want to bail them out. We want to stop that. We don't like to see them hurt. Now, in one sense, that's good and right. But in another sense, it's not loving. It's like... Your kid has a meltdown. You say no to something. Like, no, you can't have seven cookies. And they throw a fit. They have a meltdown. You're like, well, that's not okay. So we got to do something. we got to have consequences. Well, I don't think they should go to the birthday party they're planning to go through this afternoon. You know, well, but they've been, they've been looking forward to that for so long. They, they, they're going to be disappointed if, if she's not there. And, and we, you know, start to backtrack. Like, we can't because – or – Take a teenager. They have a meltdown. It's not okay. Let's take their phone. Well, I don't know. I mean, they need it. They need it to communicate with us, and, and they have this project that they're working on, and, they, and, and we make excuses, and we end up enabling sin rather than correcting and discipling sin. And, and that's more about us than it is them, isn't it? That's more about how we feel. It doesn't feel good to watch you experience any pain. So I'm going to back off and just kind of hope everything's going to be all right. But you, you just taught them that sin is okay. Sin is okay. There, there, there really aren't consequences. Now, you should do that with kindness, with patience, with gentleness. Don't delight in it. God doesn't delight in disciplining his kids. He doesn't delight in consequences for unbelievers going to hell. It's not a, a joy to him, but he loves us. 
So show grace to your kids when they sin. Treat them, help them when they make mistakes. Forgive them from your heart. But understand, actually, sometimes the most loving thing you can do for people in your life is to allow them to experience the consequences of their choices. And that may be the very way God gets through to them. If we create a pseudo world where there is no consequences, that's not loving. That's not positioning them to receive the grace of God. Hebrews tells us that for those who are trained by God's discipline, it will yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness. It's up to them and God whether they're going to be trained by it. But it is up to you to not enable and bail them out always. I think that's an important category to have in your mind, not just for an enemy, but for someone you love. Verse 5. Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshech, that I dwell among the tents of Cater. He's a pilgrim. I think this is kind of the heart of the, the psalm. To the Jew, Meshech was in the far north, okay, northern Turkey. Cater was in the south, as far south as you could think of as an ancient Jew in Arabia. So this is, he's not literally living in these places. He feels like he's far from home to the north, far from home to the south. He's home, but he's not home. It's how he feels. Alone, isolated, distant. He doesn't feel shalom, peace, belonging, safety. And you cannot be a Christian if you don't ever feel this in this world. Maybe you feel it every day. I think it's probably good if you feel it every day. <laughs> if you go a long time and you don't feel this, start reading the Psalms. Start praying. Start asking God to help you feel less at home here and more strange. So in this world, the choice not to embrace it and the way that it thinks and the way that it works, but to lament it is the essence of repentance. That is what it means to become a Christian. I say no to the world, and I say yes to God. This is not my home. Heaven is my home. It's, it's turning. If you feel very at home here, you might not be a Christian. We've all experienced it. I remember one particular experience I had. I had left Tucson where I grew up, and I had, it was like going to college, but I went to a prep school for one year in New Hampshire, the woods of New Hampshire. I remember getting there, and it was the tallest trees that I ever saw, and I was immediately depressed because I couldn't see the sky. Like, that was depressing, going to New Hampshire, and like, <laughs> like looking straight, th there's the trees, and <laughs> I can't even see the sky. Arizona, I'm used to seeing the sky. So I'm living there, I'm by myself, I'm in a dorm, all guys dorm, it's mostly my basketball team, and one day I hear some commotion in the common room, there's uh, something going on, so I walk downstairs, I walk in, everybody's there, they're all sitting, standing, packed in, watching porn. And I had a decision to make. Find my home in Meshech, get comfortable with the way 
things are done here or to turn away from that and walk towards Zion, to walk with God. I turned around, I walked back upstairs, I laid down on my bed, and I felt very alone. I think I was the only Christian in the school. And I tell you that story not to make myself sound righteous. It was just God and his grace and spirit. But I tell you it to teach you that it's normal. It's normal to have those moments when you feel different, really different. You feel strange. Fifty people are watching something evil. One person is not. That's hard. You should feel very strange at times in this world. This is where you should feel the most at home, right here. Of course you do. Of course you do. You are born from above, not below. The stuff in the deepest part of your soul is of heaven not of earth. Of course you feel strange. Of course you feel like this world is sick and broken and evil. If you don't, that isn't a good sign. And sometimes you feel alone. Sometimes you feel isolated. Sometimes you feel like you don't belong. That's why the gospel is so sweet. Because in Jesus Christ, you belong to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All of you holy for eternity. You're safe. You do belong. That gives you power in moments like that. struck me that we're immigrants in a foreign land and that Christians should have the most compassion on immigrants out of anybody. They are us. <laughs> they are us. When you see an immigrant, okay, leave the politics out of it. They are us. Rejoice when you feel that. Rejoice when you feel that. It's hard, but rejoice because it means you're going somewhere better. This isn't it for you. That's how the psalmist feels. Verse 6. Too long, too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. And I just find this interesting. There's really no resolution. There isn't, and God delivered me again. It doesn't say that. There's no reason. It's just open. Just this holy dissatisfaction with people and with place. I'm just, it's like when I was up there in my room, I, I did not feel the Lord delivered me again. I felt like this sucks. So let's stop. Let's imagine this psalm, this prayer, this song on the lips of Jesus. 
He's lived both sides of it. The one who is asking for deliverance and the one who is delivering. The one who is suffering and the one who is delivering. He is both servant and Lord. He is the pilgrim and the destination. No doubt Jesus prayed this all. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips. Oh, how they lied about him. Oh, how they lied. Mark 14, 56. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. How he felt righteous anger toward those who wronged him, entrusting their judgment to the Father. How he felt loneliness. Isolation, living here, away from his home. Away from angels and saints who love peace. To now among those who are wicked and love violence. His words were always truthful, always holy, always loving, always glorifying God to the utmost degree. And yet, people heard them and ignored them. When they should have been obeying him, they argued with him twisted his words and used them against him. Jesus lived this psalm and every psalm so that you can call on him in your distress. He understands more than you realize. He can help you more than you realize. Let me just ask you, have you talked to Jesus about what you're going through? Well, of course, pastors, we're Christians. Doesn't everyone talk to Jesus when they're going through something hard? No. Have you really talked to him? Not as a distant God in the sky, but as someone who's lived it, who knows exactly what you're going through. He was made like you in every respect, yet without sin. So when you call on him, when you talk to him, that relationship is what brings peace. Nobody else understands, he understands. I feel like nobody is with me, he is with me. I feel like nobody's for me, they're all against me, he is for me. He is relentlessly on your side, relentlessly with you and for you. And when I was on that bed, in that dorm, in that moment, all I had was Jesus. And Jesus was enough. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, it is a sweet truth to our ears and to our hearts that you are enough. You are the sufficient one by your word and by your spirit. That in moments of great pain and distress, when we just feel like things are off and we don't belong, and it's a struggle. We can come to you again and again and again. We can remember your faithfulness again and again and again. And that will sustain us. That will help us endure. So, Lord, I pray that this psalm would come home to our hearts and we could be real with you, knowing that you are a real God who understands is able to sympathize with our weakness, for you, Jesus, were beset with weakness. And we thank you for caring for us, forgiving us, walking with us as pilgrims. In your name, amen.